Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. Good morning, everyone. Nice. All right. Some of you. Uh, let's go ahead and dismiss our three to five-year-olds. They're going to head out to their class, and, uh, and we will dive in. So we are in week eight of our series in the book of Luke. And so week eight, we are looking at chapter two, verses eight through 21. And so if, we, um, if we're kind of doing the whole Christmas in July thing, then this is the part two of the Christmas message, uh, where a couple of weeks ago, we looked at um, the angel showing up and, and, uh, or Mary and Joseph making their way to Bethlehem because of the census that was established. Um, in order for Jesus to be able to fulfill the prophecies of being born in Bethlehem. And so we looked at that, and, uh, and now we're heading into uh, really the response, the response of the shepherds, the response of the angels, and also the response of uh, Mary and Joseph and what goes on here. And so what I want to do with us today is just look at a couple of things. I want to look at what happened, and so just historically, like what is the story telling us? Uh, what is Luke writing about this incredible event in history? Um, and then from there, what are we to believe about God in regards to this? Uh, based on what has been revealed to us, what does that say about God? And then lastly, what, what does that do for us? How does that impact our lives? How, that, how should that mold us and shape us and transform us to become more like this child who has been born? And so that's what we're going to dive into. And, and if there's ever been um, a passage, I don't, I don't tend to try to insert myself into Scripture uh, because that would not be good for preachers to do that. But if there was ever a passage that I wish I could just like insert myself into and be one of these shepherds who's experiencing this, this would be one of those passages because I would love to see what they saw. I just, right out of the gate, I would love to see what they saw. And the reason for that is because um, some of you know this about me, uh, some may not, but I, I love a good treasure hunt or um, I also love shows that are kind of those ridiculous shows about like conspiracy theories. And, uh, and it's not that I'm like a conspiracy theorist, uh, but it, it's usually either my brother or my dad will send me a show and they're like, you got to watch this. It's this crazy phenomena of stuff that happens. And there's a part of me that's like, what happened? You know, like you got to you got to watch it. You got to see. And so so I was sent a show called um, The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. Um, and it's on Netflix if you want to you know, put that on the side note. But um, I, I've, I've been watching it, and there's this part in this episode. It's basically a ranch in Utah where they, there's alleged a bunch of weird things happen there, all right? Like phones will just deplete like, uh, of energy, and, uh, or the phones will like, just go crazy and start calling people and texting things and opening apps and closing apps. And like, just weird magnetic things happen on this ranch. And at the same time, they say, like, we see UFOs here and all this stuff. So there's a part of me that's like, well, let's just watch it and see what happens. Um, and so there's this part in one of the episodes where they're, like, out and they're trying to shoot these rockets up in the air to, like, kind of gauge if there's this weird magnetic field going on. And while they're out there, they all stop and pause and they just look up and they're like, do y'all see that? It's a UFO. And it's, like, literally what they, like, kind of gather on the 
the footage is just this like little white ball of light that's up in the air and it's there for like 10 seconds and then it disappears. Now, who knows what this thing is? But technically it is an unidentified flying object. Like they've got these other things where they're looking up to see like, was there airplanes in the area at the time? Were there helicopters? They're trying to figure this out. But the funny thing is, as I'm watching this and also at the same time preparing for this sermon, not for like research purposes, but as I'm preparing the sermon, I'm thinking about these shepherds in the field as I'm watching these guys looking up at this orb. And there's this sense that they have where they're like, what should we do? Should we run and cover? Because there's a bit of terror that they're experiencing. At the same time, they're like, we can't not watch it because it's amazing. What is this thing? We don't know what it is. And it just like kind of for me has that same type of feeling like what should these or how should these shepherds actually respond when they see something that they've never seen before? And, and that's really kind of what we're diving into here is, is this type of response, this type of thing that happens that they were not expecting, um, they were not searching for, but shows up and there's a proper response that they actually have in regards to God revealing himself. And that's what I hope for us, is not that we kind of walk through life believing that there's a certain way that you should respond when it comes to how God shows himself or reveals himself, but actually looking at the scripture and viewing God in light of who he says he is and what he has already done throughout the scriptures, how that should actually shape us to respond when he does speak or when we read his word or when we are in conversation with someone else and they talk about how God is showing up and revealing himself in their lives, that should produce something in us. It shouldn't just be a, that is so good for you that God is doing this. Like it's, no, There should be more to that. And that's what I'm hoping kind of comes out of this is that it disciples us on a proper response for when God shows up in our lives and how it molds us and shapes us. So let's read it to see what happened, um, and then we'll, we'll continue on from there. So starting in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, 
He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray over this word and then we'll continue. Father, we ask that your spirit right now would just guide us in this truth. In these words that you have inspired Luke to be able to record here. And that these words were intended in order for Theophilus to have certainty and to have assurance and to have confidence in faith that Jesus is who he says he is. That he, that he did come in this way, in this ordinary, humble birth. And that, that he was revealed to these shepherds and that these shepherds were accompanied by these angels and that each of these um, characters that are in play here are, are, are significant to the story. And that it reveals something to us. And, and my prayer for us is that whatever is meant to be revealed to us would be right now through the work of your Holy Spirit. That he would open up our hearts and that he would open up our minds to be able to see the goodness of all that you are doing. So that, like Mary, we would begin to treasure this good news. We would treasure it and it would lead to rejoicing in worship. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. couple of just kind of historical observations here that Luke, again, wanting Theophilus to be aware of, and likewise us to be aware of, are important for us to note. The first thing is that the significance of the shepherds is not to be overemphasized. All right, I know sometimes, and maybe we've even done this in the past, but sometimes people want to overemphasize either the downtrodden or the sort of criminal reputation of shepherds in this day and age, to where even like their testimonies aren't held up in court. And so, kind of the spin that sometimes preachers will do with this is they're like, look how good it is that God goes to those who have no reputation, no one's willing to. Uh, hold up their testimony in court, they're uh, downtrodden, probably smoking crack while they're watching these, you know, flock at night, like they kind of view the shepherds in that light. And at the end of the day, I would say like that's, that actual reputation really didn't come around until about the fifth century. So it's after this sort of event here. But if we're also just using the Bible as reference, just the Bible as cross-reference to interpret the situation, shepherds tend to have good reputations throughout the Bible. Um, I mean, they, they are seen as people who care for their sheep, who are willing to go after the one, who uh, even Jesus himself takes upon the term and phrasing of, I am the good shepherd, I am a shepherd, and so if I'm going to compare myself to something, I'm not necessarily going to try to compare myself to, uh, like Jesus doesn't come in and saying, I'm a tax collector, all right? Like he doesn't say, I'm the good tax collector. No, he says, I'm the shepherd, I'm the good shepherd. So they tend to have a good reputation, but one thing that is good to draw out from the sense of these shepherds being in the story here is that they do come from a lowly and humble estate. They come from a they they represent more of the low economic class within this or within this society to where again God is coming to pursue that which needs him, that which needs him. And and those who are in this sort of humble and lowly estate is one of the things that we can draw out of this. But another thing, and I think this is even a greater point in regards to the shepherds, one that even um, Dr. Timothy Laniak, who is a professor of Old Testament theology, 
He states this and mentions that shepherds going to worship Jesus as a baby is a fulfillment to the prophecy in Micah 5 that the Christ to be born is actually a shepherd ruler. And so it is, it is literally showing the illustration or the picture that these shepherds coming to then worship the shepherd is showing the submission of what Christ is actually coming to accomplish. That he is going to be the shepherd of shepherds. Uh, that he's going to rule over shepherds. And that it is also a fulfillment of, of this sort of idea. Second thing I think we should look at here is that the host of angels is not to be underemphasized. So sometimes uh, we'll, we'll kind of walk through this passage or we'll read through this passage and we just sort of paint the picture that there was the angel that appeared and they were terrified and the angel's like, fear not, don't worry about it. And then as he says, like I've come to, uh, to, to, to declare glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to all men. And so this is good news. And we want to celebrate that. And, and so with me coming is going to be a multitude, a host of angels. And so you kind of just paint the picture that there's these lowly shepherds out in the field. And then there's this, um, I mean, just think about it like a sporting event. There's just these thousands and upon thousands, these multitude. And oftentimes throughout the Bible, when you hear the term multitude, it literally just means like a number we can't count. All right, a number we can't count. So there's a multitude of angels showing up. And we just kind of paint that as a, a picture that just makes the, the moment beautiful. But it's greater than that. It's greater than that, because up until this point, throughout the, the history of God revealing himself, and oftentimes throughout the Old Testament, revealing himself through the, the form of an angel, the angel of the Lord appeared. We've never seen any more than one to three angels showing up at a time. This is the first time in history that a multitude of angels show up. And the only other time that multitude is talked about is the promise that was given to Abraham that his offspring would be a multitude, so much so that you cannot count or number how many there will, there, there will be. And that through the offspring, there will come one who will be a blessing to the multitude. And so this idea of Jesus being born, it needs an announcement and a proclamation that is worthy of what he's coming to accomplish. That he's coming to accomplish not just being a blessing to these shepherds, not just being a blessing to Mary and Joseph, but he is a blessing to the multitude that has been promised since the covenant of Abraham that there will be from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, there will be a multitude on that last day. As we see this in Revelation 7, 9 through 12. After, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, Every nation from all tribes, from all peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiping God, saying, similar to the angels that show up here in this scene, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. These angels showing up in this multitude and what they declare is also a foreshadowing of what we coming into Christ Jesus will be able to declare for eternity. So it's not something that we should just underemphasize in saying that God wanted to just make sure that they didn't miss Jesus being born, but it is also him adding assurance 
to what Jesus is actually coming to accomplish. That this isn't just for those who are in Bethlehem, but this is for all that will come into the family of God that will be a multitude that no one can number. So those are just kind of a couple of things that we want to talk about when it comes to the the shepherds and the angels. Another thing to mention is that Jesus was born in a manger because um, there was no room for them in the inn. And we saw that. That was the last verse in verse 7 of of two weeks ago. Sometimes people, or or sometimes again, we can even overemphasize this point of Jesus lying in a manger. Uh, The word for inn is catalima which could also be translated as guest room. And so sometimes, and the reason why I'm I'm only drawing out this one from a historical note is because if we misinterpret what in actually means, then you start to kind of pull in just just extra biblical points um, uh, for what was going on in Bethlehem at the time that, that are just unnecessary, unnecessary. It tries to draw in more to the scene that actually makes it extraordinary rather than just ordinary. And so, for example, a lot of times if we just uh, interpret this as being an inn, which is like a hotel, then that actually takes away from the fact that that's really not what it was. Inn can be translated guest room, and that's actually the same word that Luke uses for the upper room. When he walks in and he says Jesus wants to gather them in the guest room in order to share the Passover meal with them, the same word for guest room is the same word used here for in. So likely what happened was, again, everyone's coming to Bethlehem from David's lineage in order to do the census. There's a lot of people there. It's overcrowded. Houses are getting filled up. When they arrived, likely there was just someone already in the guest room. And so what most theologians actually believe is that they just had the baby in the family room. Now, another thing to notice here is that what they usually did with livestock is we have garages where we park our cars. Oftentimes, stables or mangers were sort of like just an attached room to the house. And sometimes they would bring the animals into the actual family room, the living room, and that's where they would reside for the evening in order to protect them from the elements of weather or to protect them from thieves and robbers who would come and steal cattle and whatnot. And so likely they were staying in the family room, the living room, Um, as well as then just being placed in the hay, placed in the manger of of the scene. That is just normal. Like, that's normal. What we actually should do more often with the birth of Jesus, being wrapped in swallowing cloths and lying in a manger, is normalize the ordinariness of, of this situation. Rather than kind of creating these extra stories where it was like, uh, there was just no room for them in the end, which shows you know, the, the, the poverty level of their class, or uh, there was just rejection that they were experiencing in the moment, or that you know, there was a harsh innkeeper that would not let them come in. Like A lot of times, these are points that pastors will make during Christmas messages as if they're trying to impose more on it to make it seem like it's a greater deal. When in all reality, the irony of the birth of Jesus is how normal it is and how ordinary it is. And that's a beautiful thing. We don't need to add to it. We just need to see the ordin- how ordinary it was and how normal it was for Jesus to be born in a house. Or in some ways, people will say the cave that was underneath the house because that might have been where they put animals as well. Like It doesn't really matter at the end of the day other than saying it was ordinary. Like an extraordinary God 
came in the means of an ordinary birth. And that is to be human. That is to be human. That He's not coming in some kind of um, extra uh, ordinary way, but rather one that actually relates with us. Relates with us. So what then are the main ideas drawing from this passage that God is revealing about Himself? And as we kind of looked at it, again, because of, the, uh, because of how ordinary the scene was, shepherds are ordinary. Um, mangers are ordinary. Bethlehem is ordinary. Like, like these are, are nothing to draw conclusions on to try to make those things extraordinary. But rather, really, what, what we need to look at is the responses. The responses that reveal to us something about God. One was that God is fearful. Two is that God is peaceful. And three is that God is praiseworthy. Like these are the three responses that we actually see that form for us a view of God that is right when it comes to how they saw him. And so the first one is God is to be feared. This is, this is what we are to believe about God. Now when we think about that phrase, God is to be feared, uh, depending on your church background, you might think of two different things. And and I think sometimes we'll just focus on one without the other. Sometimes you might come from a church background that's like, we preach fire, hell, and brimstone. God is to be feared. God exacts judgment. God uh, destroys sinners. God sends them to hell. Uh, God should be feared because of what he does to sinners. And here's the reality. That's true. That's true. God does do that. I mean, we see that in Sodom and Gomorrah, where he destroyed them because of their sin. We see that with Lot's wife turned to a pillar of salt because of her disobedience. We see that with Adam and Eve cast out of the garden because of their sin. We see that with Cain, one of their first child, or one of their sons, uh, who was cursed because of his sin, murdering his brother. We see that with the flood sent by God to wipe out all of humanity because of their sin, except for Noah and his family. Like, that doesn't make God mean or evil. It makes God just and good. But because God is holy, because God is just, because God is good, He cannot commune with anything that is unholy, sinful, and evil. Like, that's just true. It's true. We'll get to the reason why people don't die because of their sin here in a minute. But I want you to see something. God's holiness, it is good for us to fear it in that way. To fear it in the sense that if I were to be in the presence of God's holiness, it could obliterate me. It could annihilate me. It could send me to hell. My sin is deserving of going to hell. Moses, as he says this in Exodus 3, or 33, verses 18 through 23, Moses, in having a conversation with the Lord, Moses said, please show me your glory. And the Lord responded, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. What what he's saying there is, there's there's a part of man that is not like me. Not perfect, not holy, not just, not good. And that part, if you see me, if you're in that presence, you die. 
You can't live if you come into this presence. And so the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. I mean, like, like there's two things going on here. One is God's protecting Moses from God. And that's something that you need to understand in your, your theology when it comes to working out salvation with fear and trembling is oftentimes when it's preached the gospel, it is that God is saving you from evil and the devil and, and sin and all the things that are wrong in the world. God's saving you from those things in order to protect you from those things. But the reality is, is that God is saving you from God. Like, like, do we understand that? Like, God is saving you from His wrath. That's what He's bestowing upon us. Like, heaven is not where God sits on a throne and rules and reigns for eternity. And hell is this place that He's created and allowed Satan to go and rule and reign. That, that's not what that is. If you've ever seen any of the episodes of the TV show Lucifer, that's their theology of what heaven and hell is. Is that, again, heaven, or, um, hell, it, Lucifer is one of the sons of God that goes to hell and he rules and reigns hell. That, that's According to the show, that's what they believe it is. That's not what it is. Heaven is a place where God rules and reigns. Hell is a place where God rules and reigns. And God is 100% Gracious, good, and just, and is ruling heaven in the beauty of His glory and His majesty and all those things that come with it. And hell is a place where God is on the throne, ruling and reigning in all of His glory. And what His glory is doing there is it's punishing the disobedience of all of those who sinned against Him and never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior for the removal of their sins and forgiveness. In both places, God is right. And He's just. The only reason why anybody gets into heaven is because they're accepting what Jesus deserved. And are receiving it as a free gift. And are welcomed in. And are coming, coming in stumbling with a humble estate that I do not deserve this, but I have been given this and granted this by the grace of God. It is a gift. And those who are going to hell are stumbling, going there, landing there because I disobeyed and rejected the goodness and gift of God. And as a result, I am deserving of all that I am getting here. That does not make God mean nor evil. It makes Him holy and just. God is holy and just. And so we get these phrases. I mean, this is just Bible 101. This is, we get these phrases where it talks about fear and trembling and working these things out. I mean, it, it, it's why like when we come into God's presence, there's just a little bit of nervousness there. There's a little bit of nervousness because I know what He's capable of. But at the same time, for the saint. For the believer, there's the assurance 
and tenderness of God that we get to experience because there is now no for, or there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This baby changes everything when it comes to us having a conversation with God and saying, are we allowed in your presence? Without Jesus, we're not allowed in God's presence. And when you do come into his presence, you die and go to hell without Jesus. That's going to happen for every person who is alive. That's what the whole judgment day is. That's why sharing the gospel and introducing them to Jesus, the only one who gives them the ticket to get into heaven, Jesus has to be proclaimed in order for them to receive his forgiveness and to trust in him as Lord and to, and to see that he is the baby that comes as a savior. As a savior. So God is to be feared. And that's the one side of the coin. Another aspect of fear is the idea of knowing. Knowing God. And if you only focus on the knowing God without the, 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 his abilities and the power and his holiness and his justice, um, then, then we'll begin to belittle God. Honestly, we make him more like us. Well, God, you, you know, I did this little white lie again, or I did this little sin. You know, it's not that big a deal. We're tight. You know, we're, we're on good terms over here. And so it's just okay. It's okay that I continue to do these sins. It's okay that I continue to... No, 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 no. Like that's... God does not operate like your drug dealer. It's just true. Like... He's not operating in that way where I just, I just still need to come get a little bit more. Like, I'm just still trying to work this out. Like, you're, you're good and you're gracious and you're loving. God is love. He's never going to discipline me. God is love. No, that's why Paul says again, like, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God is holy. The second thing here is that God is peaceful. Almost every letter written by one of the New Testament authors begins with grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Some, some version of that. Why? Because as the angels have declared here to these shepherds, do not be afraid. We have come to bring peace among those on earth whom God is pleased with. That means God is establishing peace within the body of believers, the church, among those whom he's pleased with. How, how do you... How do you get into that group that he's pleased with? Is it based on how, how often you read the Bible? Is it based on how often you pray? Is it based on how theologically you pray? Is it based on how much money you give? Is it based on how many people you serve? Is it based on any of those things that pleases the Lord? No. Who's the only person in all of the Bible... God said, I'm pleased with Jesus. Jesus. The only other time he ever says anything about this being my servant in whom I'm well pleased, and we all know it because that's what we want to hear when we get to heaven, is when he's finally glorified us and there's no sin left. No sin left. We actually, in that stage, that moment of glorification, we are Finally, like Christ. Like Christ. Righteous. Righteous. So he's establishing 
this peace on earth among the body, among the believers. And what that peace is doing is it's doing two things. First of all, it's establishing peace between us and God. It's reconciling vertical relationship, all right? Because when, again, the reason why these shepherds are fearful when the angel shows up is because, to a degree, they know their Bible. They know what happened when the angel showed up at Sodom and Gomorrah. They know what happens when God shows up and just kills people because of their sin. And so when he shows up here, they're nervous. Are our sins being held accountable at this point? Because if that's the case, we're dying. Savior hasn't come yet. We're dying. They're fearful for their lives. But instead, what the angel says is, I've come to establish peace by sending you to Jesus. And when you get to Jesus and you meet Jesus and he removes and forgives you of your sins, no longer is there hostility between you and God, but there's peace. There's peace. And then in addition to that, not only is he establishing peace between the relationship of us and God, no longer hostility, we're not considered enemies of God anymore. We don't need to run from him. We can now run to him. What he's also doing is he's establishing peace among the body in which we don't have hostility anymore, but we have reconciliation. We have the opportunity when there's conflict with it among us to run to one another rather than run from each other. To actually hold each other accountable and establish peace rather than harming one another and destroying each other's reputation or belittling one another or arguing with one another. Now there's going to be times for holy argument as we like to call robust dialogue. There's good times for that to happen. But ultimately what we want to establish is peace. We want to be peacemakers within this. And that's exactly what God is doing when He's coming is there's hostility. Because when you put two sinners in a room, what happens? Sin. Sin happens. That's why marriage is such a phenomenal thing. It's because you get two sinners who have their own worldviews, who have their own ideologies, who have their own backgrounds and their own experiences and their own selfishness and their own ways of thinking about things and how they want to do things and, and where certain things should go in the house and, and how they think they should parent their children and how they think where they should live, what kind of house they should live in. We are all selfish. And then you mingle those two souls together and say, figure it out. That's an insane idea. But that was God's idea. And he said that the only way those mingling of souls don't separate is because of Jesus. And the peace that he has brought to establish among us actual reconciliation. That we don't do as Adam and Eve did and throw each other under the bus. And try to devour one another. And try to destroy one another because of the curse of our sin. But rather we are actually able to restore one another. And build one another up. And nourish one another in the gospel. Because of the work of what Jesus is doing with his bride. The church. And the peace that he is establishing there. So he is a peacemaker. We see this in 1 Peter 1-2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Which just means he knows everything. In the sanctification of the Spirit, setting us apart for obedience to Jesus Christ 
and for the sprinkling with His blood. Again, that's the removal of our sins. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Be multiplied to you. So it's not just like, a, hey, just, you know, give it a shot. Try to be at peace with those that are very difficult to be at peace with. No, he's saying, I'm just going to continue multiplying peace for you because you're going to need it. And I don't know if y'all realize people argue with one another. They have disagreements with one another, right? Like that happens frequently. And oftentimes it happens most with those who you love and care for most. But we are to be peacemakers because of who God is as the ultimate peacemaker. Number three, God is praiseworthy. The angel uh, declares to the shepherds that this child Jesus is their savior. And that alone is cause for praise and rejoicing. That alone is cause for praise and joy. Here, the, I don't remember who said this. I remember hearing it. I was either in high school or just out of high school. Um, if God never answered any of your prayers, except will you forgive me of my sins, that alone is worthy of him being praised for the rest of eternity. Because if we're going back to big picture here, and it's heaven and hell. And all heaven is, is us asking Jesus to forgive us of our sins so that we are made righteous. No longer sinners, but made righteous. And therefore, get to spend the rest of eternity with God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the heavenly host of angels, the multitude, everything that's going on there, the streets of gold, all those good things. We're getting to experience heaven forever because here he answered the one prayer. Will you forgive me of my sins? And he said, yes. If he never healed anything in your life, if he did not answer the financial deficit that you have at the end of the month, if he did not grant you the child that you've been asking for for so long, if he does not um, fix the relational conflict that you have with other people, if he does not give you the raise that you're asking for at your job, if he does not give you the perfect house, if, if he does not give you creation, but he gives you creator, it's enough to be worshipped forever. Forever. That's important. That's praiseworthy. Again, that's why C.S. Lewis says, aim for heaven and you get earth thrown in. Don't worry about necessarily just what we're constantly praying for on the material side of things here, but lead out with praise and adoration of Jesus and what he is accomplishing for us. He is a savior that has arrived. A savior. Again, it doesn't say he, he's, he's your dealer that's arrived. It doesn't say that he's your grocery store that's arrived. It doesn't say, like, it's none of that. He's your Savior. Now, does, is God the God of provision? 100%. And he's going to supply the needs that you have. But that's not all that he is. 1 Peter 1, 3-9 puts it this way. Blessed be God the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That doesn't mean that he needs to be blessed. God's not lacking in rejoicing. All right? Like he, he didn't create us because there was a void of praise that he's longing for and trying to be like, hey guys, like I'm, I'm awesome and I deserve to be praised. I need someone to praise me, so let's create humans. Well, they gave me two chapters and then they stopped. Now I got to figure that out. Let me send Jesus. What are you doing? Why don't you go down there and figure this out so that we can get them praising us again because we deserve that and we want that and we're lacking in that. God is not lacking in praise. He's not. We believe in a God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're a community and they praise each other perfectly and have been doing so for eternity. They don't need our praise. But in their beauty and in their kindness and in their grace, they've created us to partner in the expression of what praise does for you when you bless God. And the joy that we receive when we experience His goodness and His grace and His mercy and His beauty and His love and His patience and His kindness. Everything that the Father experienced with the Son and the Son experienced with the Spirit and the Spirit experienced with the Father and the Son and how they just keep going all around. Everything that they experienced in one another and the joy, the mutual joy and benefit that they have in one another. They said, let's create humans in order for them to experience what we experience among one another. And yes, they broke it and they fractured it and they thought that they could worship each other and they thought that they could worship creation and they didn't realize that. We created them to worship. They just started worshiping the wrong things. So let's fix that for them so that the best thing that they can experience is getting back to worshiping us. That's the whole Bible. It's to bring us back into praising and rejoicing in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Because that's the greatest thing that we will ever get to experience is experiencing the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us. I love this. If you struggle with free will, I love passages in the Bible like this. Because here's where I land with free will. If it's going to be left up to me, I'm really nervous. I'm just, it's just straight up. I'm, I'm really nervous. I trust a God who enters into my lack of will I choose you or not. He enters into that. And as it says here, caused us to be born again to a living hope. Caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Two, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, again, not my power, but God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be real, revealed in the last time. In this, so that, that's one of those Josh always talked about. Anytime you see therefore, it's therefore a reason. 
in this. That's pointing to everything that was just said. Blessing be to God the Father, who's caused us to be born again through a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Through that salvation, that is all God's causing and all of God's power and all of His might that He's keeping for you, in this, you rejoice. You rejoice. That's the only proper response from those who have experienced Jesus Christ as Savior is to rejoice. And then it even, I just love this, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Like, I don't want you to see the trials that you experience as if God's not doing all of those things in your life. That's what the prosperity gospel preaches. If you're experiencing loss and you're experiencing heartache and you're experiencing trials and tribulations, you're not giving enough. You're not praying enough. You're not doing enough. That sounds like Job's friends and how they counseled him. There must be some sin in your life for why God has taken all your family from you. Except for your wife who rebuked you. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the three things that happen to the shepherds, same things happen to Mary. I mean, when they showed up to Mary, well, Mary was nervous. She was scared, and angel Gabriel, fear not, don't be afraid. I'm bringing you good news. Like, the reason why the gospel is bittersweet is because when the news comes to you, it's you're a sinner. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not one. No one seeks after God. No one searches for him. No one's longing for him. No one's pursuing him. No one's building their, their case for when they get to judgment day, and he's like, you know, do, do you have an attorney? Like, who's going to speak on your behalf? And they're like, no, I, I'm, I'm good. I've got, here's, here's all the good things that I've done in my life. And God's going to look at that, and he's going to say, it's not enough. You needed Jesus to plead on your behalf. That all of the sins that are being held against you, because even, as Isaiah says, even the good things that you do are like filthy rags. Jesus comes in and says all of the sin that was because of their stupidness, all of their sin, I've paid for it at the cross. Their slate's clean. We know who they are. I wrote their name in the book of life. And then God looks at us and I'm like, uh, what he said. <laughs> what he said. And then he ushers me into the eternal family of God. And the only response is praise and rejoicing. The reason why it's bittersweet, we fear, is because when it shows up, we see our sin. 
in light of a holy God. But it's sweet because Jesus is offered as Savior. He's offered as Savior. Fear, peace by the blood of the Lamb leads to rejoicing. You have to remember this entire book, Luke's entire purpose for recording this information was so that Theophilus would have certainty concerning the gospel of Jesus. It's for his assurance, it's for his confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Theophilus may still have been wondering whether or not this was all true. Whether or not it's legit. Just like when these shepherds get to Mary and Joseph and they tell Mary and Joseph all that they just experienced back out in the fields. There are some people who wonder, is this true? Is this real? Did this happen? Is Jesus the Savior? But Mary had the correct response. Again, Mary is an example of faith for us. She had the correct response. She did not, as it says, wonder. And by wonder, it's skepticism, not wonder as in like being awestruck. She did not wonder as a skeptic. She treasured. She treasured pondering all these things, meditating on all that they said. As a mother in that kind of first year of a baby's life wants to record everything down and just blows up the phone. And like now by like the third child, there's like three photos where it's like, but in that first year, you're treasuring every moment. You're pondering all these things. You don't want to forget any of these things that are happening. Mary in this moment is having this type of reaction where she is saying, whatever you have to say concerning God that I'm nursing, I want to treasure this. And I want to rejoice in this. And I want to meditate on this and ponder this and store it up forever because this isn't just another baby. This is my Savior. My Savior. I don't want to miss a thing. And I think what that does for us is do we have that posture that I don't want to miss a thing? I don't want to miss a thing. So if that looks like people in the church who are having conversations about what God is doing in their lives, I don't want to miss that. It might not be happening in my life, but I don't want to miss it, so I want to enter into it in your life. I want to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, even if that's not me rejoicing. But I get the opportunity to rejoice by entering into your rejoicing. So I want to have those conversations and press into them. If that means that there are prayer requests going on in the church and someone's really concerned about something, I don't want to miss what God is doing in that, so I want to enter into that as well. This is why community is so, so important. Because if we only view our experience with God through our personal experience with God, we miss out. If Mary only viewed it through exactly what she was doing, she would not get to treasure and rejoice in what just happened with the shepherds. They could have showed up and she could have said, hey, it's, um, it's nap time right now, like Jesus is 
don't wake him up. Like, can y'all come back another time, please? It's just not good right now. She, she could have said that. But instead said, oh, you've got word concerning my son? Please, come in. I need to hear this. Share it with me. We need to pursue this, again, so that it creates in us seeing God in the glorious state that He is to be feared and trembled at. While it is also pursuing peace between us and the Lord and between us and one another. And lastly, and the most beautiful, is it allows us to rejoice. And rejoicing squelches anxiety. It just does. It leaves no room for worry. That's why the Bible at the same time talks about like, don't worry, worship. Don't worry, worship. If you're worrying, worship your way out of the worry. And that is not me saying that like being clinically diagnosed as uh, being depressed is not an actual thing. That's a thing. That's a thing. But at the same time, lack of worship leads to worry. Leads to anxiety. Leads to depression. The, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And he can do that with our mind. That's why Romans 12 it talks about the renewing of your mind constantly is a mind that is rejoicing in what the Lord is doing in our lives. It's what he's doing in our lives. I want to close with this benediction that's out of Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. And it'll lead us into our communion. It's now, it says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Remember, it's like among those who God will be pleased with, he works that out. He makes us pleasurable to his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to have you guys go ahead and stand up. As you stand, if you do not have the elements for communion, you can go back to the table and grab them. This is an opportunity for us to enter into what Jesus accomplished for us at the cross. This baby that was born was a, this is the Savior born to ultimately die for us. That's how he saves us. That's how he forgives us, is by paying the penalty for our sins. We deserve death and hell, and he, he endures that for us in order for us to experience life in heaven. And he does it by the removal or by the shedding of his blood, the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. This right here is, is again, 
a meal, a spiritual meal that we enter into. Sort of like when Jesus takes his disciples up to that upper room, that katalima, and he takes them up there and he sits down with them at Passover and, he's, and he explains to them, this is what it actually means. When I pass this bread around and I break it and you partake of it, it is the illustration of me going to the cross here in a few hours and I'm going to break my body. I'm going to have the wrath of God punish me. It's going to break me. And then because the way God's economics flow is blood represents life. So to spill blood is paying debt. So I'm going to shed my blood to remove and pay your sin. And that's the cup that he then drinks with them. And so we... we celebrate that moment. We celebrate that truth in the partaking of this together as the family of Jesus, as the bride of Christ. We celebrate that because this is the only thing that brings peace between us and God and between us. It's so powerful. So whatever sins, again, that we have committed um, that we continue warring with and struggling with. This is also just one of those moments that, it, like, again, you're forgiven, past, present, and future. All right, your 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 heavenly estate is taken care of. But because we're not glorified, we still deal with this on a daily basis. We still walk in flesh at times. We still sin. We're still selfish. We're still dumb and stupid. And this is one of those moments where we get to come to the Lord and continue affirming what He's already done in our lives. He's already forgiven us of these dumb things that we keep doing. And so we get to, in clear conscience, come and say, because of your breaking of your body and your shedding of your blood, I I can run to you and not be afraid. Not be afraid. And so right now, whatever those things are, we represent it in the body and the blood. And we partake and we thank Jesus For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death, until he comes. Let's do that now. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at